CLNS's Patriots coverage is powered by our exclusive wagering partners at betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome bonus. I'm Evan Lazar, joined as always by Alex Barth. We're going to talk about some of the happenings at the owners' meetings. Robert Kraft speaking to reporters this morning. Bill Belichick speaking to a media contingent yesterday down there in West Palm Beach. We're also going to hit on the overtime rules and the changes to the overtime rules for the postseason, but we got to start with the signing of the day for the Patriots, the Pats bringing in a player that once upon a time, Alex, at least in my world, I always used to say that Jabril Peppers was a guy that I thought Bill Belichick could get the absolute most out of. He used to watch him at Michigan, that 2016 Heisman finalist season, and you see a player that has so much potential so much versatility so much athleticism and you just said wow that's the type of guy that bill belichick gets his hands on he's going to be an absolute stud in the Patriots system took him five years to finally get him here but now the patriots have jabril peppers on a one-year deal out of all of the low cost high reward moves that they've made this offseason all the little bargain buys they've had this one feels like it has the most potential to have the highest upside maybe not the longest term but the highest upside yeah i i absolutely love this signing and you you kind of talked about it there off the top but there's a handful of players in the last 10 years in college football that you know you look at him and you think man if bill belichick could get his hands on him and normally they're guys that are out of the patriots range like i remember christian mccaffrey was a guy that i personally i think a lot of other people said that about like man if bill had christian mccaffrey in this system what would happen right and peppers absolute peppers and mccaffrey are probably the two guys and then tyron matthew uh would be the three guys i really think of in that mold and yeah i think he fills a lot of needs short term i think he could long term i know it's a one-year deal and that's probably about right but um you know he's going to come in initially probably be a box safety probably play some linebacker he can rush the passer too he's really a pass rusher for somebody his size they're going to be able to use him everywhere i mean he can play from the defensive line to the back end and i wonder you know long term devin mccourty's 35 he feels pretty year to year at this point if if he's a potential long-term replacement for devin mccourty or if having him as a box safety i mean i know you're somebody who's talked a lot about as good as duggar is in the box you would love to see him playing on that back end, playing that center field role. So whether yeah. it's it's Peppers back there or whether it's Peppers sliding into the box to allow Duggar to play that deep role, I wonder if this affords them the opportunity to maybe start thinking about, you know, who's next after Devin McCourty, if it could be one of those two guys. So like you said, super low risk contract. I think it's up to $5 million, right? Uh, you know, good deal there. I, I still think Peppers can play. The other thing to remember about him, and I, I wrote about this on 985thesportshub.com before we came on. You can check that out. You know, again, he just a stud at Michigan. I mean, he was one of the most yeah. electric players in college football. He was probably the second best safety in all of college football for the decade of the 2010s. Tyron Matthew was number one, who, by the way, is also a free agent. And if somebody puts those two together on the same defense, I will lose my mind. If it's the Patriots, even better. Would love that. Um, but, you know, just an absolute stud. At Michigan, athletic freak, really good player. He, you know, he won pretty much every postseason award he could win in 2016 as a linebacker and as a safety. And he kind of hasn't showed up as much in the NFL, but he's been in some bad spots. I mean, he gets drafted by the Browns. He's on that 0-16 team that was a mess 
Uh, starting to figure it out his second year. Then he gets traded to the Giants in the Odell Beckham deal. And here we go. You know, he's got a reset there. That was another really bad team, a really bad situation. 2020, Joe Judge comes in. They make him a captain. He had a really good year. He actually was a good player in 2020. And then last year, he tore his ACL. So I don't know that his lack of NFL success, look, you can always, you know, you can always expect a player to do more. I don't know how much of Pepper's lack of success in the NFL I put on him. I think he's been in some really bad circumstances. I'm not saying the Patriots are what they were 10 years ago, but this right now is the best situation he's ever been in. It's the best situation he's been in since Michigan. I know he's coming off that torn ACL, but boy, if it really feels like if, if he was going to click, this is the time and place to do it. And if he does click, if we do get, cause he's shown flashes, but he hasn't done it consistently. If we can consistently see Michigan, uh, Jabril Peppers in the Patriots defense, that could really be something. He'll be a playmaker. He'll be not just a contributor, but an impact player if all of that happens. Yeah, it's one of those moves where you hope that Bill Belichick is going to put him in the right places, use his skill set properly, and tap into that first-round potential. This is still a player that ran in the mid-4-4s at 213 pounds, sub-7-second three-cone, over 35-and-a-half-inch vertical leap at the Combine in 2017, and then also had probably the best defensive season of any player in that draft in 2016 on tape. So that's that guy, I do think, still exists somewhere in that mold. Now, is he going to be as good as what he might have been coming out of college if the Patriots could have gotten his, their hands on him in the 2017 draft? No, the Pats didn't have a first-round pick in that draft, and it wasn't going to happen. Regardless, I still look at the guy in Jabril Peppers that he is now. I had turned on that tape last year from the Giants, and I get he's coming off the ACL, but it did happen early. It happened in week six or week seven, sometime six. in October. So he's going to be plenty healthy come training camp by the sounds of it. Turn on the tape against the Washington Commanders. And this is a guy that's playing multiple sl- uh, roles, mostly playing in the slot, but also playing some in the box, playing some deep blitzing, as you mentioned, guarding guys like Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick coming out of the backfield, playing some zone roles over the middle of the field and having a lot of responsibility in that defense. And you could tell, that he was able to handle most of it, sifting through options and zone coverage, understanding motion and how it affects where his assignments are, banged up the seam with Jordan Thomas. He was a good tight end in Washington that he's running up the seam with. J.D. McKissick, good pass catching back that he was able to match out of the backfield on a couple of routes. That tape that you saw against the commanders last year and some of those early season tapes with the Giants last year reminded me a ton of Adrian Phillips. And I think that that's probably the best comp on the Patriots current roster. I think Duggar and Peppers are a little bit different players in terms of physicality, play strength. I think Duggar's a little bit bigger, a little bit thicker, uh, brings a little bit more in that respect of the game. But in terms of how he was used, the assignments that he was used in, the roles, those types of things, he reminds me a whole lot of Adrian Phillips a couple of years ago when I watched Adrian Phillips from the Chargers and was projecting him forward to the Patriots. So we know Belichick loves these types of guys. If it was up to Belichick, he'd probably roster 10 safeties, right? And it can never have too many of these right. versatile hybrid safety types. Peppers fits that mold again. And not only can he contribute on defense, although he had some issues early on in his career with fumbling, muff punts, things like that. I would expect him to throw his name in the ring for punt returner to replace Gunnar yeah. Oshevsky. Why not? Kick returner, camp, too. 
yeah, I would expect them to put him back there. And the more that you can do for the football team, the more likelihood that it is that you're going to make the squad and be a contributor on Sundays and on game days. So checks a lot of boxes, gives them more depth at safety, gives them another return option with the way that things are looking there without Gunner. And the last big picture thing I wanted to bring up here. We've talked about this a few times. Jonathan Jones tweeted about it right at the beginning of free agency. And that tweet's gotten a lot of uh, love and a lot of attention. Positionless football in the secondary. And right when we cover the Patriots, we're always looking for Bill Belichick's latest zag. What's the move that he's going to make to go against the curve, to go against the grain, while everybody else is out there paying J.C. Jackson $17, $18 million a year and drafting corners in the top 10, like Patrick Sertan and J.C. Horn last year, and I'm sure Derek Stingley and Amon Gardner this year. When all these teams are putting such stock in outside cornerback talent, it would not surprise me if Bill Belichick looks at that and says, well, now the value around the league is at safety, it's at nickel corner, and I'm not going to worry too much about where everybody's going to play and if we have a true outside guy that can play there full-time and all that kind of stuff, and more look at how can we build a secondary that is filled with guys that can just do everything. And that, to me, I think is a big – indication of a lot of these signings right we have yeah. terrence mitchell and malcolm butler and a mac wilson trade and now you bring in a guy like jabril peppers where all of these parts are seemingly interchangeable you might not have one guy that can go out on the outside and shut anybody down right now but you have you could throw last offseason a guy like jalen mills into that category too who can just basically do whatever he wants and move around and play different roles I look at this back end now for the Patriots and I say, okay, well, you have you have two options. You can either spend big on a corner, you can draft one in the first round, or you can go for a bunch of smart, instinctive football players that can play a bunch of different roles and move around the secondary and match up week to week based off of skill sets and mix and match and make it work. And something tells me that that's where we're headed a little bit more with Bill Belichick because the value of this outside cornerback group in free agency in the draft is skyrocketing. Everybody on the cornerback group, if you're a good outside corner, you hit free agency, you're getting $17, $18 million a year without breaking a sweat. If you're a good outside corner in the draft like Amon Gardner, you're going fifth overall. The Patriots aren't going to get that guy. So you might as well find other guys that you can be able to get. Uh, to me, I think that that's really where we're headed with a lot of these moves, and Jabril Peppers kind of fits that mold. Well, then the next guy, I hinted at it before, and I know realistically he may be too expensive. But, man, if you add Tyron Matthew to the secondary right now. Yeah. And then, you know, you draft a guy like Kieri Elam. There's something there. If that if this is the route yeah. they want to go and be zone and positionless, Peppers and Matthew, those are the kind of guys you want. I, I, I'm just, I, I'm going to, it's not going to happen. I'm going to get myself all excited. Yeah, you're getting yourself all... He is probably my favorite college football player I've ever seen. I, I believe he's the most dominant college football player I've ever watched. And I watched Bush. I watched Tebow. Um, Cam, Cam would be like the closest, but I, he, the way he impacted the game on the defensive side of the ball, I've, it, it, college pros, any level, I've never seen anybody impact the game as a defender the way Tyron Matthew did at LSU, but that's that, that's another point for another time. 
I want to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag after months of playing college basketball has determined the top teams for the final four and will determine this year's national champion this coming week. Looking to wager these games? Head over to the website or use your mobile device today to sign up and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get started. Bet online remains your number one spot for all your updated odds and information, along with player props and great contests throughout the year. Your continued source for all your sport wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started. So join today and learn why everyone is saying bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager all of your popular sports and games bet online where the game starts. Um, yeah. One other thing I want to touch on, you talk about the depth. I think it's more than just, you know, it's safety. I think what, what would the opposite of the front seven be the back seven? I, I don't yeah. know if that's really a term people use, but I mean, it, Jabril Peppers can play. They can have him play off the ball linebacker. They can right. have him. They could have him be an edge rusher on third downs. I mean, he's not really going to set the edge against the run, but third and ten, throw him out there at the edge. Send him after the quarterback. He can play in the slot. He can play a little outside. He can play box safety, deep safety. It's not just you know insurance for Kyle Duggar and Adrian Phillips. This is a guy that this is this is Bill's whole thing, and he talks about this all the time. When you have the backups, right? We, you know, you can only have so many backups. You only have so many players on your roster. You have more positions than you have players on your roster. So you need guys who can be a backup in multiple spots. Right. How many spots is Jabril at the very least? Let's say he doesn't totally hit that ceiling. He's just a serviceable player. At the very least, how many spots is Jabril Peppers a backup at for this team? Right. Right. I almost want to compare him to like Brock Holt. Money backer, right? That will money backer role. I also look at it and I say, Okay, so you can have now some of these packages against some of these teams. Now, I'm not going to recommend it. Like when they play Buffalo, Buffalo found its running game in the second half of last year. And I don't know if you can go dime, you know, quarters, defense, six, seven DBs against Buffalo. You might get run over now uh, with the way that the Bills were able to adapt their offense and use the run game a little bit more. But I do think there are going to be matchups where – the Patriots are going to look at it and say, we're going to just put all of our speed and all of our DBs on the field. All these guys can play at the linebacker level. They can do different things at that level that maybe a linebacker couldn't. And that's sort of what I'm anticipating now moving forward as well is we've talked so much about off ball linebackers in this draft, right? From Devin right. Lloyd to the Kobe Dean to the day two guys like mama and beavers and Quay and, Tyndall and just, uh, you know, Troy Anderson and just go on down the line. And I wonder with all these moves, you got Jawan Bentley under contract. They got Cameron McGrone and Rayquan McMillan coming back off of injuries. At what point do you also look at it and say, well, even if we do draft, unless he's, unless he really comes in here, like Christian Barmore did last year and blows us out of the water and is an absolute stud. Is is there a role for that traditional linebacker to play a ton as a top 50 pick by the Patriots? If the Patriots were to take a, a guy like N'Kobe Dean or Devin Lloyd, or I guess Dean's kind of in a different category, but let's stick with like Devin Lloyd or Mummo or Walker or any of those guys. Now sure. you look at it and you say, okay, well, where is his three down role? Because 
on third down, we're probably going to just put all these safeties out there, be running three or four safety packages in passing situations, and that's going to be a better upgrade for us. Obviously, you would hope that that player could maybe unseat Juwan Bentley at some point in his rookie season, but does the need for off-ball linebacker, is that still a top-tier need for you after all of these off-season moves? Mac Wilson's trade, uh, Jabril Peppers brought in, you know, all these different moving parts now. Is off-ball linebacker still num- near the top? I don't even know if we had, either one of us ever had it at number one, but it was it was always high. Yeah, we, I, you know, I had it in the top three. I think it's a good point. I, they have done a lot at the linebacker position. And the way I look at it, Mac Wilson, Mac Wilson's still young. What is he? 25, 26 years yeah. old. Another guy who like Jabril peppers. I don't know that his lack of NFL success is because he's not a good enough player. It's that nature versus nurture thing, right? I don't think the Browns really were using him correctly. I don't think they were allowing him to play to his strengths is Mac Wilson. And he's a little bit older, obviously, but Let's say as as a prospect, and I use the term prospect loosely because Mac Wilson's been in the league, but as a prospect, Mac Wilson's probably on par with most of those day two linebackers we've been talking about, right? Chad Mama, Quay Walker. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I'm kind of starting to feel that way. You know, if they want to go day three, Nate Landman, Aaron Hanford, I still don't think it would be a bad idea to add another body. But for all the needs they've piled up this offseason, we we talked a lot about this, how The draft board changed because corner became more of a need than we anticipated. Guard became more of a need than we anticipated, right? For all the needs, it feels like they've added to the draft board. It does feel like linebacker has fallen. The two tiers we've used or I've used a lot on the show are immediate needs and luxury needs, right? An immediate need is you don't have the bodies. You don't have NFL caliber talent. A luxury need is you you have guys, but you know, you could upgrade. It is starting to feel like linebackers shifting more towards that luxury need category. And look, you're counting on some things there. You're counting on Mac Wilson to kind of write what was wrong in, in Cleveland. You're counting on uh, uh, Raquan McMillan, Therese Hall, uh, Cameron McGrone to come back healthy and look good. But and it, teams do this sometimes. You need to fill a position. You don't have a sure way to fill it. You find four or five guys who are coin flips, and odds are one of them is going to pan out. And it kind of feels like that's what they're doing at linebacker. I don't think that's a sustainable thing to do at a lot of positions over a long period of time here and there. It's not a horrible way to go about it. I actually, I'm okay with where the Patriots are at linebacker. They could be better. They could be better, but I think that's, you know, if there's one position, I think they've done a, the best job of addressing so far this off season, it's the linebacker position. I've liked the moves there. Yeah, I, I that's sort of where I'm at too. If you can get, if you feel like your evaluation, for example, on a guy like Devin Lloyd is that that guy is going to be, uh, I don't want to say Micah Parsons, but in, in that category, right? A, a day right. one impact star player. They still could use that guy in their front seven that changes the equation for them a little bit more, that pushes the needle further a little bit more. But you just mentioned some of those day two, day three guys. Now we're getting into that mix. And I I am starting to think, wouldn't you, I I wouldn't say, wouldn't you rather, but at this point with the resources that they have, it might be a better use of those resources to look at some other positions and let's see what they get out of Cameron McGrone. Let's see what they get out of Raquan McMillan. Let's see what they get out of all these safeties that they've brought in. And if they can be a little bit more positionless or 
hybrid safety types playing linebacker roles. If you draft a linebacker on day two, but the plan on third down is to have four safeties out there, then where does he play? Unless he can play on the line of scrimmage, then where does he play? So that's a big thing for me as well with all this. The other shoe I think is that might actually drop once we get into training camp a little bit more. A lot of these moves this offseason that they've made as well kind of signal that guys like Miles Bryant in particular, but I'd also mention Jawan Williams in this category. And the coaches' minds just weren't cutting it last year. And they bring in veteran guys. Peppers can play in the slot. I, I think Malcolm Butler is best used as a wide corner, but I think he can also potentially play nickel or in the slot, especially at this stage of his career. I look at those two moves in particular, Terrence Mitchell adding some depth at veteran corner on the outside and say that the Patriots have reservations about ever having to go back into a playoff game or a meaningful game with Miles Bryant as their starting slot corner. They seem to be adding layers there to avoid that situation happening again. It's no slight on Miles Bryant. I think he's a nice player to have at the back end of your roster, potentially practice squad guy that could get elevated when needed. But clearly, I think they recognize that Brian in particular, a full-time role for that him in this defense is probably asking a little bit too much out of him. Sure. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right. Let's move on to some Robert Kraft comments this morning. Uh, speaking oh, wait. To you media, want a little, little uh, breaking news for us here? Uh, we really it's need a... Uh, oh, no, well, not, I, this not, is really just for us. Nobody in the chat's going to care, but I would have texted okay. you guys if we weren't on. The NFL is bringing back open locker rooms in 2022 for the media. There we go. I love that. That's good news. Yeah, that's That's so we can get a little more of the personality of the players now, which will be nice. I know people enjoy that. So, yeah, I mean, it's disappointing that when you have all these new faces and you're trying to usher in a new regime of players and Matthew Judon and Jalen Mills and all these guys come in last offseason, Hunter Henry and Nelson Aguilar born. All that stuff happens last offseason, and the closest that we get to having a real interaction with these players is at the podium. There's no side conversations. There's no off-the-record conversations with any of these guys. And to me, that's where a lot of the information, especially I would say for me personally, from a football standpoint, because somebody might not tell me on the record where exactly he was supposed to be or who was exactly supposed to be where, but I might be able to get somebody to tell me it off the record. Right. And then I can use that in my analysis. So that's a big thing too. Um, with it, I, I, I say bigger for me personally, the football side of it. So I, I think right. that'll be fun. All right. Robert Kraft uh, spoke this morning. Bill Belichick spoke yesterday. We didn't have a podcast yesterday. What were your biggest takeaways here from, from RKK though? Cause he, he did. Do you feel like he put any pressure on Belichick? Cause I, I feel like he, he tries to, but he also knows in the back of his head, I'd be absolutely crazy to get rid of Bill Belichick. So we're not actually going to do that, but I got to say some things in the media to be a little bit more pushy with where we're at right now as an organization. I think if anything, he put pressure on Matt Crow, you know, with, with the comment about, you know, we had a good draft last year. I hope we keep doing that made up for the last four years. This is how, you know, we need to build to, to win. And I, I, I've said this this off season. I think this is the whole plan. I think, you know, we were, what are they doing in free agency? 
the plan is to add the impact players in the draft. And that's much easier said than done. But yeah. that was my big takeaway from what Kraft said, because, he, you know, they got to go to him and tell him how much money they plan to spend. And I'm sure, you know, they probably got up to him that this is what we're going to do. We're, we trust Matt and, you know, Elliot Wolf and those guys are going to, we're going to replicate what we did last year. You know, realistically, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. If they add, they added three impact players in the draft last year, right? right? In, in, in Mac Jones, Ramondre Stevens, and Christian Barmore, three immediate impact players. If they add three or four immediate impact players this year, they're actually in pretty good shape. And then the other thing, thank you in the chat. Somebody, uh, somebody put something in the chat. The other thing Kraft kind of hinted at is they're counting on internal growth and not just from last year's rookies like Mac and, and, and Barmore and, and Stevenson. But guys who now have a second year in the system, Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, Johnny Smith, right? right. Bill kind of talked about this with Johnny Smith as well yesterday. I think that the plan is, and I know it's not sexy. It's not what anybody wants to hear, any of it. I really think the plan is internal growth and playmakers in the draft. They're not trying to be splashing for agency. They, they're counting on their guys to get better and cheap talent. In the draft, I think that's the plan between what Bill said and what Kraft said. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. I think that's what they're trying to do. I think that's how they're trying to make the team better this year is they're going to count on just the guys they already have in the room getting better and plugging those holes with guys in the draft. One of the things that Belichick said yesterday that I thought flew under the radar a little bit that's along these lines. He mentioned Macro's handling of the draft last year as the director of college scouting and said he thought that macro was one of the best people they had ever had in that position. I think he was talking about the director of college scouting position, not the director of player personnel, this position that macro is in now. So last year he gave macro a lot of the credit for putting their board together, essentially said he put the draft together. Right. And, and that's really where he gave a lot of the credit to. We've talked about it in the past with guys like Elliot Wolf, uh, guys like Dave Ziegler, their backgrounds are mostly in pro personnel scouting and the pro game. Grow is more of a college scout and a a college. I mean, he's all, that's his his whole background. Right. So I believe that Bill is telling the truth when he says that macro was the driving force behind the draft last year. And it was pretty clear that Bill thought the most successful thing about their entire off season last year was the draft, and that's why he promoted the draft guy to director of right. player personnel. So, and I mean, wasn't it? Was I, I wouldn't yeah. disagree with him if that's his thought. No, no. And I look at what Robert Kraft said today. He continues to harp on the fact that they need to build through the draft. And you're right, Macro's the guy. He's the guy that they're hoping can hit on another couple of draft picks here, point Belichick in the right direction, get them some good players in April and that's going to be their main off season additions. I also like when Robert Kraft speaks like he's a fan or like he's one of us when he talks about Bill's moves and he's like, I try to stay out of it because I know I don't know enough to really interject, but it also looks a little funny to me, the coaching staff that we're putting together. So I'm trusting that Bill Belichick has the right idea here and is the super genius that we all think he is, and that the results are going to speak for themselves. But Kraft 
went in a little bit about the coaching staff and admitted that even he doesn't always see the direction that the Patriots are going in. And Belichick himself confirmed yesterday that they are going to move Matt Patricia to offense. Joe Judge is going to be heavily involved in the offense. I still hope that Troy Brown and Nick Haley are going to be the driving forces there, but it doesn't seem like it. It kind of seems like they're going to allow Patricia and Judge to be the big contributors or the heavy hitters on that side of the football. I still don't feel great about it. I I understand that Robert Kraft's angle is probably the correct answer for all of us on the outside looking in to say, Bill Belichick knows a thing or two about what he's doing. Let's let him do what, do his thing. But to put Mac Jones, put this offense in those two guys hands, it's, it still doesn't leave a whole lot of excitement or trust in either one of those play people until we see it out there on the field in that and see Matt Patricia and Joe judge doing a good job. Right. All right. What else do we got here? Uh, from RKK overtime. better. Yeah. We can talk some overtime rules. I, I gotta admit this one for me is I can't understand for the life of me, why people care so much about this. I understand we care so much about everything and that's just the nature of the beast. But I really don't understand why everybody gets so damn worked up about overtime rules of all things. You look at the my Twitter timeline after this news came out today that they're changing the OT rules for the playoffs. And everybody's freaking out about it or has a take or whatever. I honestly could care less which way it is. I think this way, when you look at the playoffs, you look at the history of the playoffs – when you have the best quarterbacks in the league playing in these playoff games, the Patrick Mahomes is the world, the, the, you know, the Joe Burrows, Josh Allen, Tom Brady, obviously Aaron Rodgers, whatever. When you give them the football and a chance to win the game and you say, you drive the field, you score a touchdown, you win the game, you go to the next round, you go to the Super Bowl. These guys are almost automatic. And I think that's what these owners look at. And they see that 10 and two record for the team that, possesses the ball first in overtime and look at a competitive imbalance when they see that record. I think there's more to that record than meets the eye at times, but ultimately this was always going to happen because of that 10 and two mark. If this was eight and, you know, a little bit more even, right. If we're eight and four, if we're seven and five, then maybe we're not having this conversation today, but 10 and two is way too stark of a difference for people to not look at it and say, are these rules really fair? But why why do people get so fired up about this, Alex? Because I, I can't really figure because, it out. Because their team lost, and they don't want to admit that their team is bad. This whole thing is so stupid. It's so dumb. Overtime's not going to be fair. It's not. Not in a sport like football. That's the reality of it. If it was fair, the fair way to do it would be to get rid of any concept of sudden death and just play 15 minutes straight right. up. Like whoever's in the, in right. the playoffs, right? Just playing. No, no hockey, sudden death. No, like soccer. No, hockey, hockey in the playoffs is not sudden death. Oh, it is sudden yeah. death, but they keep playing until there's a winner, right? No, but I'm saying I don't care if you score and then stop the other team and then okay, score so you again. Wanna, I got you. I got you. So, Play, like, that's, the, that's the only way it's going to be fair. And right. look, that's not going to happen because the union's not going to allow them to add that many snaps. But right. I think the thing that everybody's forgetting here. There should be no incentive for teams to take the game to overtime. Yes, if you're trailing and it's either overtime or you lose, 
then yes, you want overtime, right? If you're down seven with 10 seconds to go, you're not just going to kick a field goal. Obviously. There should not be incentive for the Buffalo Bills to go into the preventist prevent defense of all time because eh, if the game goes to overtime, that's fine. We'll have our shot like that. That needs to be disincentivized. Yeah. You should not. Overtime is a damn. Well, we got to wrap this up because we've got to go home for dinner and the streetlights are coming on. That's all overtime is supposed to be. Overtime isn't supposed to be a viable strategy to win games. And that's, you know, that that's the problem here. You're just making it easier. You're making it easier to yeah. win in overtime because now you don't have to necessarily get a defensive stop. And by the way, for all the people saying it's not fair that the two teams don't get the same number of possessions, what happens when team A scores a touchdown? Right, because the defense is so gassed at that point. You can't count on the defense. Okay, fine. Team A gets the ball. They score because the defense is gassed. Team B then gets the ball. They score because the defense is gassed. You know what it is now? It's the old, old overtime rules. The ones where you could win the game by going 40 yards and kicking a field goal. Now that's back with the gas defenses. It's not going to be fair. It's never going to be fair. You know, well, teams should have a fair chance. The fair chances win the game in regulation. That's your fair chance. You have a 60-minute fair chance to win the football game. After that, it all goes out the window. So don't go into prevent defense. Don't start benching players. Don't, you know, what? Oh, we'll give them a field goal, whatever. No, win the game in the time allotted. After that, I have no sympathy for you whatsoever. Like, I don't necessarily care that they changed the rule or they didn't. I just think what this is so baseball. This is this is what baseball does all the time. They solve problems that didn't exist. Like this doesn't solve well, anything. If anything, it doesn't, it it doesn't it solve anything. But it, in the interest of fairness, now nobody can ever say again that my quarterback didn't touch the football in overtime. And that's ultimately all that it is. And it, but it, what it's going to become is well, well, their quarterback got the ball twice. And our quarterback only yeah. got the ball once. They just had to kick a field goal. Like it's this is just no, fun to be excuse, bitching. But I think people are still going to bitch. I think the hardest part that people had with the overtime rules the way that they were is that Josh Allen never gets the ball. That Patrick Mahomes in the eighteen cool. awesome. title game that never sucks. gets the ball. That sucks. I, I get what you're the, the Bills had but sixty the, minutes. The Bills had, no, no. Let me say it. Let me say it. The Bills yeah. had sixty minutes to put the ball in Josh Allen's hands. They had 60 minutes, 6-0, to put the ball in Josh Allen's hands, and they didn't take it. I, I, I don't have any sympathy for them at that point. I didn't have sympathy, I don't have I don't have sympathy, sympathy for it either. Anything. It's stupid. I, I, don't, it's I honestly stupid. could care less about it. Like, play whatever overtime rules you want to play. But my I, what I come back to is two things. One, the league doesn't want the outcry about the overtime rules to exist anymore because the league But this isn't going to change that. There's still going to yeah, be outcry. Wait, wait, number two. And I think the most important thing out of all of this is that, and this is why I don't fully under understand why they didn't just adopt a college style overtime, because ultimately right. what I think that they want is they want dueling star quarterbacks in overtime on a playoff stage, right? They want Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen to be going back and forth in a winner take all playoff game essentially in a sudden death format, but not really a sudden but death this format. That. This is clearly not that. Right. 
This is what right. that's so, where the problem is, is they should have gone with the college style overtime. If they wanted that, it's overtime. And the two best quarterbacks in the league are going toe to toe, even though that already happens in the fourth quarter of most games. Right. If they wanted that theater, then they should have just gone all in on a college style overtime so that that was the setup. Now it feels like, like you've been saying, team A scores, team B scores, team A kicks a field goal, team B cries. That, that, that's exactly right. what I feel now like it's, we're setting up for now. Well, well, they won the toss, so they only needed to kick a field goal to win the game. That, it's the coin, right. the coin, the coin. Well, and then the there's, coin. Then there's the other argument that now, and this is where I was going to take it in a second. Yeah. If you're Bill Belichick, because you know Bill's now thinking about this as a strategy, right, of what's the best course right. of my – for me to do and he'll base it off of what's going on in game and how his defense is playing offense is playing all that stuff do you take the ball to start overtime or do you kick it away and know what you're up against right because if the uh, opponent doesn't score or the opponent kicks a field goal then you know that if you score a touchdown you've won the football game I think that there's going to be a lot of teams Patriots potentially included that are now going to defer in overtime they're going to kick the ball away in overtime first instead of taking the football like most teams do or 99% of teams do. So I, I don't know. I'm not saying that that is, makes it any more fun that there's this little added wrinkle of chess strategy or whatever, but no, that it's, does it's an interesting, too. it's an interesting strategy conversation because again, if you get the ball first, assuming matching results, all you need is a field goal to win the game. Right. So there's that advantage. On the other hand, if you get the ball second, you know what you need to do to win the game. You can, you know, if it, even if you give up a touchdown, if they kick the extra point, you can go score and go for two, and then they don't get the shot at that field goal. So I think it comes down to your roster. Do you have better offense, defense, et cetera? Um, but it's still not – it's like I don't want to hear that overtime needs to be fair because the only ways to make overtime – there's only two ways to make overtime fair. There's only, I'm not going to bring it down to a five. This is annoying. I'm sick of having this conversation. I'm sick of Bills and Cheese fans bitching about it and using it as excuses why their team lost. That's why we have to talk about it. There's only two ways to make overtime fair, realistically. I said before, first off, play 15 minutes. Play 15 minutes. It doesn't matter what happens. It's whoever's winning. You play a fifth quarter. No sudden death. You play fifth quarter. The other way to make it fair is win by two. So you turn the clock off, right. you go back and forth, and basically a team has to score. You have to get two unanswered scores, right? So you, I guess touchdown, if you get a touchdown, the other team kicks a field goal, I guess you'd win. But like you, you, you give both teams an even chance to answer. Neither of those will pass because they revolve significantly more snaps and the union won't go for it, nor should they. Overtime's not going to be fair. The problem is there's this misconception that overtime is supposed to be fair. I'll say it again. You have 60 minutes to win the football game. And I saw somebody in the chat say, well, so does the other team. Yes, it's sports. One team's going to win. One team's going to lose. That's how this works. Okay, not everybody can win. You have 60 minutes to win the football game. That's that's the that's the fairness. That's the far point. That's the fair part. Right. 60 minutes to win the football game. If you don't want it to come down to a coin flip, if you don't want it to come down to 50-50, I win the football game within those 60 minutes. I don't have pity for you. If you can't win the game within those 60 minutes, that's pretty much where I'm at with it. Ultimately, they can't make it fair. It will never be fair. 
So just ultimately, suck it up, deal with it, win in regulation. Ultimately, just change it to college style because that's where I know the league wants to go. I think it's a little bit yeah. too gimmicky for the NFL and some of the old school guys that run the league and some of the old owners and coaches like Bill Belichick are going to be like, we're, this is not an arcade game, right? This is an NFL football game and they're not going to want to do that. But I think ultimately in the next three to five years, we're going to get to the point where it's basically set up like college. Is I, I just re, real quick side tangent here because I think I just backed myself into a corner. Don't the analytics say don't play for overtime? The analytics are always the analytics always skew more aggressive, right? Whether it's going for it on fourth down, whether it's don't play for over, they all they look at overtime and say there's a lot more outcomes, there's a lot more variables that we can't control. Whereas if we go to tie the game at the end of regulation and we go for two, we control it's one play that we have to win. Right. Whereas if we go to overtime, you're opening up a whole nother can of worms. So I would say that they probably lean a little bit more towards avoiding overtime, but it's all, all right. it's they never finally right. got one right. Yeah. They finally okay. Got uh, one right. Last thing here before we wrap things up, I, this name has been out there a lot and uh, I wanted to quickly mention this as a topic just because I know Patriots fans have heard these rumors, not necessarily related to the Patriots, but DK Metcalf, what's going to happen with him in Seattle last year of his contract on his rookie deal pre-agency bill simmons coined that phrase not me i'm gonna use it pre-agency dk metcalf meaning now is a time where he's gonna decide whether it's gonna be a long-term extension in seattle or it's gonna be playing elsewhere this time next year or even sooner than that we've seen so many different receivers at this point from tyreek hill to Devontae adams to all these guys over the last couple of years that have moved on this contract year because the team can't agree to a long-term extension. Their current club can't agree to a long-term extension. The starting point with DK Metcalf is $20 million per year. The deal that Mike Williams got the three for 60 from the chargers. That's the absolute low point for a DK Metcalf contract. My guess is that he probably hits might hit a five-year hundred million dollar deal. Not obviously fully guaranteed, but somewhere around that. Ulti- do you buy that the Seahawks want to keep DK Metcalf? Because I I believe that Pete Carroll used the same phrase he used with Russell Wilson when he said we plan on or whatever the wording was to have DK Metcalf on the roster next year. Said that about Russell Wilson at the combine, and here we are. So, do you think that the DK gets moved? Would you like him here in New England if he does get moved? Do you think he's worth it? Uh, what would you get up for him? Where are you on this? Yeah. I- I see. I don't think Seattle's going to trade him. I know that there's that quote or whatever. And look, he could want out, but they're kind of they're kind of in a perfect situation where they don't have Russell Wilson's contract weighing them down. They really don't have any big contracts weighing them down. Yeah, they can afford to pay him. They're going to have a rookie quarterback on the, the you know the rookie quarterback deal, the affordable deal. So they're going to have more money to spend. And look, what's the conversation we've been having all off season? I know you know. The Bengals had it last year. The Jets are having it now. You get the young quarterback. You want to pair him with the stud wide receiver. You're looking for a guy who's probably about 25, 26 as a true deep ball threat. Bengals have him. They had, yeah. or, sorry, the, the Seahawks have him. And, and the Bengals have him too. Uh, but the Seahawks have him in DK Metcalf. I don't see the incentive to move him. Like a guy like Tyler Lockett, Tyler Lockett's 30. By the time right. they get through this rebuild, Tyler Lockett's not going to be you know, a contributor. So it makes sense to move him. 
you come out of the other side of this rebuild, DJ Metcalf's going to be 27, 28. He's going to be right in his prime. And you have that elite receiver for your young quarterback. So I wouldn't, even if he asked for a trade, if on the Seahawks, I really dare him to do it. You know, I, I asked, I started three first round picks. I started three first round picks. And if he's going to hold, let him hold out, right? Let right. him hold out, let him waste years off his prime, let him tank his value. Um, unless I can get an absolute haul for him, like an absolute haul, because I think you could. I, the big question is more so that the phrase that Pete Carroll exactly used was the Seahawks intend to have DK Metcalf on the roster, which is exactly what they said about Russell Wilson. I think the biggest thing is with DK, does DK want to be in Seattle? Now he's came out and said since the Russell Wilson trade that he feels like the leadership role left by Wilson, left by Bobby Wagner. It's now up to him to step up to that mantle and talking about being the next guy in Seattle. But if you're DK Metcalf, the options that you can play with at quarterback are so much better out of the other 31 teams that would probably love to have DK Metcalf on their roster than anybody that Seattle's going to get, whether it's Malik Willis or whoever, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. All the other quarterbacks are going to be better pairs for DK than any of those guys. So while well, I look at Tyreek Hill, I look at Devontae Adams and the way that they essentially force their way out of their current stops. I, I do wonder if we get to a point with a guy like DK where he's forcing his way out of Seattle more so than the other way around because he looks at it and says, they have nobody to throw me the football. I'm a downfield receiver. It's not like DK is one of those gadget type of receivers where like a Debo Samuel, where you can get away with having an average quarterback. You need to have somebody that can push the football accurately to him down the field. Otherwise he's useless. So ultimately I think he's going to want to trade. What would it take to get him? I think it's at least a first in the second round pick like Devontae Adams got in green Bay or for green Bay from the Raiders. The reason why it was so low for that situation, I think, is because Devontae Adams only wanted to go to the Raiders. There was no right. he wasn't going anywhere else. It hurt his market. The trade that the Dolphins made with Kansas City for Tyree Kill might be a little bit he's not quite as good of a player as Tyree Kill, I don't think, quite as productive as Tyree Kill was. But I think you're talking about five or six draft picks going back to Seattle for a guy like DK. I just if I'm Seattle, I don't move him. I don't. I think because you're essentially it's weird. We I, I talked last year a lot about the steps of the rebuild, right? Yeah. They have step two done. They still need to do step one, but they have step two, they have step two done. You talk about the quarterbacks of this year's draft, and the pitch to DK would be try it with the guys in there for a year. Next year, you got Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Phil Dracovic, Anthony Richardson. You've got some cannon arm quarterbacks coming out next yeah. year. If he can put up for for one year, suddenly if you're DK Metcalf, you're 26 years old, you're about to get the bag. Seattle can give it to you. You've got a capable quarterback. I I think it would I like. So here's the thing: if we're gonna do this right, do like have this conversation about the wide receivers and the pre agents and all that. I think it like I would put DK third or fourth in terms of the most yeah. likely to move. He's probably better than some of these other guys, but like. I think it would make more sense. It would be better use of our time to have this conversation about, I think AJ Brown is the big one, right? Yeah. Well, cause that, that entire, look- not to revisit the Nikhil Harry thing, but that entire, right. it's that entire draft class. class is coming up on it. 
so Terry McLaurin, AJ Brown, Debo Samuel. Those are the DK, three. Uh, Hunter Renfro, if you want to go a little bit deeper, although with Josh McDaniels in Vegas, you would have to assume that Hunter Renfro is going to be a priority for them. The, all those guys are now set to be free agents. None of them obviously were first round picks. So they're all on expiring deals. When you look at the Patriots flexibility, we talked about this a little bit with Miguel when we brought him on early in the off season. And he discussed the issues that the Patriots have with draft capital. They don't have the capital like Miami did to make that Tyree kill trade happen. They don't have the capital to outbid some of these other teams when these guys come available. But that entire draft class is now looking for their payday, and all of them have earned it. Even like uh, in the chat, Nick said uh, Deontay Johnson from Pittsburgh is another one, not necessarily on the DK Metcalf, A.J. Brown level, but still a really good player. So all those guys are due for contracts. All those guys could be moved at any time at this point, it feels like, just because we've seen how rocky this gets. You know, any one of these guys decides that they want out, there comes the trade. This is turning a lot more into the NBA. I don't necessarily like it, but that's kind of where we're at now where players don't necessarily need to honor contracts and they can force their way out of situations. And this is what we're at. This is where we're at. In terms of the Patriots and all these guys, I just don't see the Patriots ever giving up the draft capital to pull off a trade like Miami made for Tyree kill, giving up Bill Belichick four or five picks to then go ahead and pay somebody $20 million a year over a, four or five year contract Uh, to me. I I don't ever anticipate Bill Belichick being willing to part with that much investment for one player. That's not a quarterback. Maybe you would do that for a prime star caliber quarterback, but then I don't even think so. So I I don't know if the Patriots are going to be interested in any of these guys. Maybe if they hit free agency next off season, they could throw a bag at somebody, but in terms of losing draft capital and paying the guy, it seems a little bit lofty to expect the Patriots to get involved in that. Yeah. Again, I, you know, not all these guys are going to get moved. Like it doesn't make sense for the Titans to trade AJ Brown. It really doesn't because their window is so small. They're going to have to, you know, Tannehill's getting up there and Derek Henry relative to running back is getting up there. They're going to have to rebuild in a year or two. Anyway, it doesn't make sense to start shrinking that window. Like AJ Brown to me is the guy who's just going to play out the last year of his deal and then hit free agency. So again, it's another reason why, if you want to have this conversation about that 2019 class and guys who might be available, I think there's a conversation to be had there. I don't think DK Metcalf is the guy to have that conversation about. Again, I think it's AJ Brown, Terry McLaurin, Debo Samuel. Those are the guys, right? Titans are towards the end of their window. Jimmy Garoppolo sucks. We don't know what, what Trey Lance is going to be, but the Niners are kind of a mess. Also that team's low key embarrassing the way they keep losing in the playoffs. I could see Debo wanting to get out of there, putting their left tackle in motion, get the hell out of here with that. And um, Washington, Washington can't lock down a quarterback. And look, maybe they take Malik yeah. Willis and or if, and I, if I'm looking at no, this, Darren Carson Wentz, looked- I forgot they have they, when they traded for Carson Wentz. Terry McLaurin, that's maybe you trade for Terry McLaurin. Terry you should McLaurin ask his way out. Like the guy that definitely could want out, and he's a great fit here. All right, plays inside, plays outside, yeah. runs great routes, good at the catch point down the field. I mean, he's a great football player. He seems to me like the guy that's most likely to not only pry loose because that organization is just dumb and doesn't know how to handle good assets, but also secondly, want out with Washington. I mean, what has Washington, right. other than drafting him and giving him an opportunity, 
what has Washington done for Terry McLaurin? I mean, they've done nothing but kill his career around him. He's an all all pro caliber talent that's never been on a good football team, that's hardly ever played with a good quarterback. So yeah, that that's the one that I circle and look at and say, okay, well it'd be it'd be nice to dream about Debo Samuel and correcting that wrong or DK Metcalf and potentially correcting that wrong. But the guy that I really feel like made the most sense, makes the most sense now is somebody like Terry McLaurin, who has got to be wanting out of Washington. I mean, he just has to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'd agree. So that about does it here for us today. We're going to cut this one short uh, so that my jaw doesn't explode. Uh, Fighting through some pain today. So I appreciate everybody, uh, you know, dealing with that and everything uh, for me, but on Thursday, big show on Thursday, Mock Draft 2.0. Alex and I got screwed in Mock Draft 1.0. Essentially dealt the worst case scenario, a terrible hand. And now we're hoping Mock Draft 2.0, we're going to get the best hand possible, be able to take somebody like Jordan Davis or Jameson Williams or Olave or whoever at 21 and go from there. But we're going to have Mock Draft 2.0 on Thursday afternoon, and then we will be back next week. We're going to start to preview some of these position groups in the draft here on the show. We'll always have these Tuesday shows slated for some news and some latest rumblings and things like that. But we also want to start previewing and doing some deep dives into some of these position groups that the Patriots might be interested at the top of the draft and throughout the draft. So look for that next week as well. But on Thursday, Mock Draft 2.0. Uh, we got great turnout uh, last week. Hopefully we'll get that again this week. And like I said, hopefully the draft will go a little bit better at the top than it did last time with the simulator absolutely killing us uh, on PFF. Now you can trade veteran players as well. So we can maybe ship a chip like a Nikhil Harry or like Isaiah Wynn or whatever the case may be and get another pick and have some real fun with it. So We'll see you guys on Thursday for Mock Draft 2.0. And until then, signing off for Alex Barth, I'm Evan Lazar. Thanks so much for watching, everybody, and we'll see you in a couple days.